Back on John Edwards. Tommy Bridges on the mound again. Got the signal from Mickey Conklin. He's all set for the delivery. Here it comes, and it's a foul. Back up against the screen. Back of the plate, and the count is now two strikes and one ball. And another new one tossed out to Tommy Bridges. Standing back to the mound, rubbing his gloves off. Pepper Martin is down on second base. There's two away. The count is two strikes and one ball on Medley to his back. Bridges gets on the mound. Getting a signal from Conklin. He's all set for the delivery. Here it comes. And it's a drive going out to deep right center. Looks like it might be in the stands out there. Off the post, it's against the screen. Martin scores. And Medwick is racing for third base. Here he comes. And he pulls up at third with the triple. Feeling down there between Owen and Medwick, both shoving each other around. And all of the players from both clubs are charging out there. Looks like we're going to have a little scrap there for a moment. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball swung on at the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get off the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10 to 6. I don't believe it. My, oh, my. From high Robinson Union Studio Complex, and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, and this is Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. And today, we're going to be taking a look at those rambunctious rowdies, the 1934 St. Louis Cardinals, better known as the Gas House Gang. And before we do that, I want to welcome you in. Thank you for all your sport uh, support on our weekly little show here. Every Tuesday, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you keep coming back as our story list archives keep expanding. And we are now available on all major platforms with the exception of YouTube. I'm having a little technical issue there, and I hope to figure it out soon. But uh, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods, I'm there. Or you can check me out on my website, uh, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Dot com And I, I keep a playlist there as well if you want to uh, keep up with the show. Uh, if you want to contact me, you want to contact the show, you can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. Please, please, please uh, follow, subscribe, comment, rate me as you see fit. Every form of uh, public interaction, it helps the growth of the show. And as I told you before, I am committed to the growth of this show. Uh, I will never charge you for content. I'm never going to Patreon you or crowdfund you. Uh, I love my audience, and I respect you, 
And the best way for me to keep giving you good free shit is uh, for you to follow, comment, and all that jazz. And you can find us on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. Or on Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private group. Okay, now that we got that business side out of the way, let's dig into episode five here on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And today, we will be examining, uh, I guess, one of the more colorful collection of ballplayers to ever comprise a team, and that's the Gas House Gang of the 1934 St. Louis Cardinals. And I want to give you a little mindset of the setting. It's America. We're emerging from the uh, rubble left in the wake of the Great Depression. The country is basically looking at baseball as kind of this distraction from its economic and social ills of the time. And the origin of the name Gas House Gang was originally coined by the team shortstop, Leo DeRocha, who in an interview with a St. Louis media member one day, he explained that there really wasn't a team like them over there in the American League. Uh, and he was basically talking about teams like the corporate New York Yankees, who were, you know, like this very polished championship pedigree. And... What he was saying is that teams like those were looking at the Cardinals as nothing more than a bunch of gas houses. And back in those days, uh, gas houses were like these, uh, these factories where you refined coal into oil. Uh, they were usually in poor and impoverished neighborhoods. There was a lot of gasoline, a lot of petrol fuels toxic fumes that would waft throughout the neighborhood. And the workers who worked there, they looked like these blue-collar grass monkeys with the stained, you know, kind of jumper suits and all. And at times, the Gas House gang did resemble that look. Their uniforms were always dingy and faded. And even when the uniforms were washed... Uh, many of them had, like, ground-in stains that were never coming out. And, in fact, opposing teams even complained about the smell of the Cardinals' gear. One opponent compared it to the uh, smell of a wet dog. And DeRoach's implication was that most teams viewed the Cardinals as a brash trash team. Second-class baseball citizens. And he probably wasn't far off with that assumption. At first glance, it would be hard to consider the 1934 St. Louis Cardinals pros. <laughs> and that is until you saw them actually play. And so the Gas House Gang was born, ironically, from the lips of Leo the Lip DeRocher, whom we're going to cover in a moment. The press loved it. And the zany, rambunctious gang they played apart. They played hard and they fought hard and sometimes it was with each other. Now, before I break down the characters on this team, I want to remind you where we are in time. It's the Great Depression. We're mercifully ending that Great Depression, actually. But it's still not quite over. 
the average American at this time, they know struggle. They know what it's like to be the scrappy underdog. They know what it's like to lose everything and to start over. The period of recovery, both economically and socially, was spurred on by the drama and entertainment value of the Gas House Gang. Uh, they were both compelling and lovable because the average fan could basically relate to this group of rough-and-tumble pranksters. The architect of the Gas House Gang was none other than GM extraordinaire Branch Rickey. Ricky, the Bible-thumping staunch Methodist, while in the infancy of his illustrious career here in St. Louis, was the innovative and brilliant mind that created a minor league farm system for the St. Louis Cardinals. And armed with this revolutionary farm system that all teams would eventually adopt, the Cardinals always had like top-shelf liquor prospects waiting in the wind. And because of this innovation, Ricky and the Cards would rake in five pennants and two World Series in eight years before the 1934 season. And I've said it before on the Roberto Clemente podcast show, Branch Ricky is probably the greatest general manager who ever lived, even to this day. I mean, the guy discovered Jackie and broke the color barrier. He's inventing farm systems that eventually everyone's going to adopt. He brought Roberto Clemente to the Pittsburgh Pirates and it changed their fortunes forever during his career. Branch Rickey is the greatest GM who's ever lived. And I can't wait to do the Branch Rickey story here on Backwards K Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. So in 1926, Branch Rickey, he makes a blockbuster move by trading for the Fordham Flash, Frankie Frisch. And he got him from the New York Giants. The second baseman was a stalwart leader with John McGraw and the Giants. And he led them to six World Series appearances and two world titles. The future Hall of Famer had a great relationship with the manager McGraw as Frisch was named captain of the team. But all that changed on August 26, 1926, when after a tough loss, McGraw berated Frankie in front of the team, and Frisch left the team, never to return. So, Mr. Ricky, ever the opportunist and singularly focused on winning world titles, he traded Roger Hornsby for Frankie Frisch and pitcher Jimmy Ring. In 1931, he led the Cards to their first ever championship. By 1934, Branch Rickey makes him player manager as the team was being built under his no-nonsense, between-the-lines approach. The four-sport uh, four star at Fordham University was a natural-born leader who led by example. In 1934, the Fordham Flash, Frankie Frisch, he mostly batted leadoff, and he compiled a 305, 359, 398 slash. 74 runs scored and 75 driven in. 
And while his wheels weren't what they used to be with the Giants, he was still able to take the extra base at opportune moments. And his number one skill was the ability to mess all these egos and all these personalities of this team into one unit. And one of the little side stats that I found on Frankie Frisch that I just think is completely amazing. Listen to this. Frankie Frisch is the only switch hitter in baseball history besides Chipper Jones to bat at least 300 on both sides of the dish. That is an amazing stat. I mean, that's pretty much consistency on both sides of the plate right there. You can't ask for much more from a switch hitter. The Cards had zero world titles before the Ford of Flash. And by the time his career ended, they would have two. And now today, the Cardinals have the most chips in the National League with 11. So this was the beginning of the Cardinals and their 11 championships. Now, the next piece in the game was Jeffrey Leonard Roosevelt Martin, a.k.a. Pepper Martin, or the Wild Horse of the Osage, which they called him that because of his daring exploits on the base path and his trademark head-first slots. By this time, he's playing third base. He's a kid out of uh, Temple, Oklahoma. He was a seven-year vet of the cards by the time the 1934 season has arrived. And he was a key catalyst in the 1931 World Series victory over the Philadelphia A's. Uh, in that series, he pounded out 12 hits, which was then a World Series record. Four doubles, home run, five stolen bases, five, uh, five RBI, and a 500 batting average. And you could say he uh, single-handedly killed the Athletics, considering the rest of the team around him hit a paltry 250. In fact, let the record books show that Pepper Martin still has the highest World Series average of 418 to this day, and his seven stolen bases in World Series competition, it ranks 10th. He was once regarded as the next Ty Cobb. His balls to the wall play, it kind of took a toll on his body. But that is what the fans loved and expected from Pepper. And he always delivered. He was the guy who would run through any obstacle to head first slide in the home to score that decisive run. Also, Pepper was like the team prankster. He kept everyone loose. He's the guy that's going to hot foot you. He's the guy dropping water, uh, water balloons out of high-rise hotel rooms onto unsuspecting pedestrians on a sidewalk below. Uh, they used to have this funny little band that team did. They were called the uh, Mudcat Band. It was a hillbilly-type band. Uh, the, the majority of the Gas House gang were all, most of them were Southern kids. And he was the guitarist of this band. He, uh, he actually created it. And it was pretty much all the Cardinal players. It was pretty funny. Uh, pretty funny stuff. The fans used to love it. 
He was a prankster in charge. He was elected to the Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2017. And he was a key catalyst in that group. Pepper Martin, the wild horse of the Osage. Leo the Lip DeRocher. He was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. As mentioned earlier, he came up with the moniker for the team. He was a light-hitting shortstop. He had played for the Yankees and Reds before landing in St. Louis in a trade during the 1933 season. And the Lip was the perfect nickname for the controversial, outspoken shortstop. A solid relationship developed between Branch Rickey, Frankie Frisch, and Leo. Frankie relied on DeRocher to be exactly what he was, this uh, fiery player and the most vicious bench jockey in the league who had this amazing photogenic memory. He was, in essence, the lip, the mouthpiece of the team. I mean, after Dizzy Dean, of course, but we're going to get there in a second. Just put it this way. Leo in the clubhouse, Dizzy in the press. And just as the Ford and Flash was Branch Rickey's right-hand man, Leo the Lip was Frisch's right-hand man. And the truth is, he may not have been the most intimidating physical specimen on the team, but he was fearless. And he had no regards for anybody's feelings. And Branch Rickey, whom I told you was a devout Christian, who never showed up at the park on Sundays. He absolutely abhorred foul language, which every other word from Leo's lip was the F word. He came, he came to appreciate and love Leo so much that he would ignore his classes with authority, the commissioner, and the press. And eventually he would hire him as his manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers years later. While Leo was the lip, Joe Ducky Medwick was the muscle in the clubhouse. He was the son of Hungarian immigrants who found a life in Carter, New Jersey. Uh, Dizzy Dean had heard that while on the farm, Medwick had been razzed by his teammates about his running style, and they compared him to a duck running across the pond before takeoff. And once Dizzy heard this story, uh, the name Ducky was given to the left hand, left fielder Medwick immediately. Uh, Medwick hated that name, by the way. And there were times when Joe seemed like he hated everyone, quite honestly. Uh, especially those fucking Dean brothers. <laughs> it's funny because DeRocher tells a story where one day, Dizzy in his southern draw, he's ragging on Medwick in the dugout about some shoddy defense out there in left field. I don't know. He missed a ball or something. I don't know. Something happened with Medwick out in left. And as the goofing becomes more intense, an argument begins to break out between Dizzy and Ducky. And at some point, Dizzy and his brother Daffy approach Medwick like they want to fight. And Joe casually reaches for one of his bats and he tells the brother in no unspecified terms, if you come any closer, I'm going to split the two of you apart. And kind of bedlam breaks out in the dugout. Eventually, an awkward piece would come over the dugout. And later in the game, Medwick hits a go-ahead three-run home run 
And after running the bases, Meg would go straight to the water fountain next to where Dizzy's sitting. He takes a big gulp of water and he spits it on Dizzy's shoes. And he says, let's see if he can hold that fucking lead now. And that, of course, started more arguing. So you can see these guys are type A alpha males. And they fight as hard as they play. Sometimes with each other. And, you know, Joe's not to be messed with, quite honestly. I mean, but that's who they were. They, they were fighters, they were warriors, and they were winners. Uh, Ducky was like a Vlad Guerrero, Yogi Berra type ball hitter. And when I say that, I mean from the top of his laces to the bill of his cap. Anything in between that is basically a strike. And he would square up on pitches that pretty much looked impossible to hit. Medwick was one of those top-shelf liquor prospects that the cards had waiting in the wing for all those years. And the 1934 Gas House gang season was his second full year in the majors. That season, he finished with a 319, 343, 529 slash, 110 runs, 198 hits, 40 doubles, 18 home runs, and 106 RBI, a 124 OPS plus, and he only struck out 83 times in 646 plate appearances. He also led the league with 18 triples, a byproduct of the Cardinals and their go-go philosophy where you're pretty much expected to take the extra base if you can in 1937, at the age of 25, Medwick would pace the NL in runs with 111, hits with 237, doubles with 56, home runs with 31, RBIs with 154, and a 374 average, becoming the last National League player to ever win the Triple Crown. He's now a member of the Cardinals Hall of Fame as well as Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And while Ducky was the combative muscle of the gang, the Ripper was the quiet assassin, James Anthony Ripper Collins. He earned his nickname when, as a kid, growing up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, he once hit a ball so hard that it hit a nail protruding from the outfield fence and it ripped into shreds of pretty much, you know, worthless leather and yarn. And when the opposing manager asked, who the hell hit that ball? The outfielder that day who ran after the ball said, oh, that the Ripper did it. And the nickname just stuck. And on a gas house gang lineup that was blessed with four everyday players who batted 300 or better, as well as, you know, this catching platoon they had, uh, when I was looking at it, Spud Davis and the left-handed hitting uh, Bill DeLancey, who together had a slash line of, get this, 308, 391, 515, respectively. But it was the Ripper who led the team in runs scored, 116, hits with 200, 40 doubles tied with Ducky, 35 home runs, 128 RBIs, a 1.008 OPS, 369 total bases. And his slash line 
of 333, 393, 615 was tops on the team across the board. So he's your stat guy, and no one ever really talks about the Ripper. His 35 home runs in, in 1934 was not only tops on the Cardinals team, but a tie with giant slugger Mel Ott for the NL lead. 5'9", 165 pounds, switch hitting first baseman, would quietly, if that's possible, for a gas house gang member, he would clean the bases of all these 300 uh, base hitters out there on the base pass. I mean, he must have been loving life. Every time he's coming up, there's, you know, there's a duck out there on second base. 128 RBIs. I mean, that's like Manny Ramirez numbers right there. We're getting up there. That's a lot of RBI. And to me, Ripper Collins, you know, <laughs> he was in the business of run production. And in 1934, business is good, baby. I just wanted to give you a feel of some of the major players in this offensive powerhouse. Uh, the colorful team had nicknames and personalities. I mean, it was part like 1934 mobster and like part Batman Road Gallery. I mean, some of these nicknames are off the wall. You had The Flash, The Wild Horse of the Osage, Ducky, Ripper, Leo the Lip, Kiddo Davis, Tex Carlton, Wild Bill Hallahan, Burley Grimes, Dazzy Vance, and Spud Adams, the catcher out of Birmingham, Alabama, whose 308 career average is the fourth highest among big league catchers to this day. Spud Adams. But the irrepressible focus of the Gas House gang, for better or worse, was the leader of the gang. And that was right-handed pitcher Dizzy Dean. No one knows for sure how he got his nickname. And Dean always had like this new story to tell you about its origin. And maybe that's how he got the nickname, by always keeping the writers guessing. And with his cover... Confident Southern Arkansas drawl that was short on syntax but long on color and witty imagination. Dizzy would joust with the local St. Louis press and their scribes. And the press ate it up. They, they shoveled through the minutia of, you know, self-promotion and bragging to get that Dizzy quote. And the cards first noticed Dizzy Dean on the sandlots of Arkansas in 1930. And like I said before, because of Branch Rickey's ingenious idea of a minor league farm system, their system was in a whole other galaxy than other teams of the day. They could find a Dizzy Dean and actually develop a talent like him to eventually make the majors. During the 1930 minor league season, Dizzy Dean won 25 games. The Cardinals promoted him up to the big club to make the, the last start of the year. Uh, after a complete game, three hit went over the Pirates. The local press expecting to interview a joyful rookie were... They were basically amused by this youngster who was bemoaning the fact that he let them bums get three hits off of him in the first place. 
And Jersey was a real deal. And everyone knew it. But the Cardinals decided to start the right-hander in the minors in 1931. Branch Rickey was concerned with uh, Dizzy Dean's lack of humility and his gratuitous spending habits. And he certainly had maturity uh, concerns when it came to Dizzy Dean. A year later, in 1932, Dizzy makes the majors for good. Uh, He goes 18-15 with a 3.30 ERA, 191 strikeouts, and 286 innings pitched, and a 1.34 whip. He would also improve on those numbers in 1933, going 20 and 18 with five saves in 48 games, a 304 ERA, 199 strikeouts, and a 1.17 whip. The team was 10 games better in the standings from the year before. They finished in fifth with an 82 and 71 and one record, and that sets up that magical 1934 season. And like two ravenous vultures gracefully circling their vulnerable prey, Dizzy and his more humble, affable brother, I would say, Paul Daffy Dean, they played to a marquee building on a star-studded zany group of cards. And the American public ate it up. The 1934 Cardinals, the Gas House Gang, a team that would bully their way to the crown and entertain the baseball universe while doing it. And while on this, you know, 1934 trip, Dizzy and Branch, they had a uh, complex, tumultuous relationship, I want to call it. It should also be noted that at times, uh, Dizzy Dean's teammates despised him. They despised his ego and all the attention he garnered. And Mr. Ricky could overlook things if it brought him titles, but Dizzy would stage like various small holdouts for more money. On one occasion, he declares himself a free agent 40 years before Kurt Flood and Andy Messersmith would challenge the reserve clause. He also argued that he had signed with the club as an underage team. He was constantly lobbying to have his little brother signed and promoted to the show. And after winning 22 games in the Cards minor league system in 1933, St. Louis broke broke camp with Paul Dean in 1934. And, you know, Paul adored his brother. The Deans were thick as thieves. Paul would follow his brother to the edge of the world if he had to. But... Honestly, he was really nothing like his brother uh, in the personality department. Uh, He was quiet. He was humble. I guess you could say he was the perfect yin to his older brother's yang. The media in St. Louis, they originally called him Harpo Dean after the quiet Marx brother Harpo. But the press would eventually at some point take creative license and dub him Daffy to add a piece to the Dizzy-Ducky combo. And like Medwick, with his moniker Ducky, Paul hated the nickname Daffy. But like I said, the press ate it up. 
So, before the 1934 season even began on opening day, Dizzy's holding court, and he told the press in his own special way that along with his little brother, the two would combine to win 45 games together, and that should be enough to get the Cardinals to the World Series. And I'm going to tell you, no one in the 30s could run smack like Dizzy Dean. And then back it up with, like, sure force of will. In fact, it was Dizzy who once would say, it ain't bragging if you can do it. And before he arrived on the scene, the always vociferous Dizzy had certainly mastered the art of self-promotion. As his game developed in 1932, and now here in 1934, uh, players and fans, they, they went from dismissive chuckles at the country boy to wild praise. And by 1934, Disney had, he literally had the baseball world in the palm of his hands. Now, the cards, they kind of ran hot and cold during that 1934 season. Uh, but Dizzy and Daffy, they were doing all they could do to keep pace. Dizzy and his Diva Ways complained publicly early in the season that he and his brother should earn half of teammate Wild Bill Hallahan's contract, claiming they were both twice as good as him. And needless to say, that caused a ruckus in the clubhouse with the other starting pitchers. But Dizzy never seemed to care about the chaos left in his wake. Down seven games to the New York Giants in early September, the Cards, and in particular, the Dean Boys, they went off. By September 16, they had pared that lead down. That was 1-7. It's now 4 and then that night, they swept the Giants in a doubleheader. Dizzy won the first game in relief, and Daffy outdueled Carl Hubble in the nightcap. Five days later, the Deans would double down on that performance with another doubleheader sweep, this time over the Dodgers at Abbott's Field. Dizzy won game one with a three-hit shutout, and Daffy spun a no-hitter in game two. Causing uh, Dizzy Dean to quit. Hey, if I had known Daffy was going to go throw a no-hitter today, then I would have thrown one as well. And the Dodgers were unexpectedly uh, helping the Cardinals because down the stretch, besides being swept in those, that doubleheader against the Cards, uh, Brooklyn kind of helped their cause out by putting it to uh, the New York Giants, their rivals. Brooklyn had been seething all year from preseason smack by uh, Rivals general manager Bill Terry. Uh, in an interview, Bill Terry asked if the Dodgers were still in the league. In fact, when Dodgers manager Max Carey didn't act on motivating his team through the context of Bill Terry's remarks, the Dodgers summarily dismissed him. And they replaced him with Casey Stengel, who was far more likely to use these comments 
as motivation and uh, weaponize them. Going into the final weekend of the 1934 season, the Cards trailed the Giants by one, with Cincinnati coming to St. Louis and the Giants hosting their rival Dodgers. Daffy was masterful on Saturday, beating the Reds and earning his 19th win of the season. And Dizzy threw a second shutout of the Reds in three days in that final game. It was his 30th win of the season, and no National League hurler has reached that peak since. In fact, let me give you Dizzy and Daffy's final stat line here for the 1934 season. Dizzy Dean went 30-7 and seven with seven saves, 266 ERA, 195 strikeout, and 311 and two-thirds innings pitched, a 159 ERA plus, and a 1.17 whip. I mean, absolutely astounding numbers. His brother Daffy, 16-11 with two saves, 3.69 ERA, 150K, and 233 and a third innings pitched, a 123 ERA plus, and a 1.19 whip. Not bad for a rookie. So, with the weekend sweep over Cincinnati, the Cards are forced to scoreboard watch and pray somehow that this sixth-place Dodgers team could pull off a miracle and, uh, you know, get an upset of at least one of these games for a tie. Well, to St. Louis's jubilant astonishment, the Dodgers took both games from the Giants, and they answered Bill Terry's dismissive question. Yes, Brooklyn is still in the league, mother effer. I mean, to be fair, the Giants had molested Brooklyn during the regular season. They compiled a 14-8 overall record versus their uh, 1934 rival there. However, comma, those two games were backbreakers. The Cards had justified and validated Dean's boast at the beginning of the year when he told the writers that he and his brother would combine to win 45 games and go on to the World Series. Let the record show. The Deans won 49 games combined. And, well, I guess you could say that that exceeded even Dizzy's expectations. And while St. Louis had been to five World Series in nine years, the heavily favored Detroit Tigers were returning to the World Series for the first time since 1909. It is interesting to note that this 1934 World Series here would be the beginning of a trilogy of World Series between the Cardinals and the Tigers. The Tigers were dubbed the G-Men because of a trio of sluggers in Hank Greenberg, Charlie Garriger, and Goose Goslin. And they also had player manager Mickey Cochran navigating the club. And True to form, Dizzy came in hot. He proclaimed that the Dean boys are going to dominate the series. They're going to win all four games between the two of them. And his words would prove to be prophetic once again, as he won two of his three starts, losing game five, three to one, as the cards bats, they basically went cold, and 
Just like Dizzy told you, his brother, he won the other two games. In game four, Dizzy was a pinch runner. And Pepper Martin hit a sharp ground in the second. Dizzy went into second base standing. I mean, he's, I guess you could say standing. He, he's going in high. And he's hoping to impede the double play. And the shortstop, I mean, he pretty much threw a perfect strike. He hit Dizzy Dean right in the forehead. And it momentarily knocked the pitcher out. And he's a crumpled mess out at second base. And the trainer and the manager comes out, and they're trying to revive him. And when he comes through, he the first thing he says is, uh, did they get Pepper? Which they did not, because uh, the ball ricocheted off their forehead and went to center field. He was carted off the field on a stretcher, and then he was taken to a local hospital. Uh, like I said, that was game four. He's coming in as a pinch runner when that happened. Uh, and then he pitches game five, correct? Yes, and he loses three to one. So he gets hit in the forehead in game four. He comes back, pitches game five. He pitches okay, loses three to one. So, uh, yeah, he takes his uh, ball off his forehead. And it, it, it's crazy. And one of baseball's greatest tall tales it was said that a newspaper headline screamed, X-ray of Dizzy's head reveals nothing. And it's just pretty funny. I mean, it is like one of those baseball tall tales, but I couldn't find any newspaper heading that actually said that. Daffy was uh, Dizzy's equal, if not better, in his two starts. He won game three and six. He quietly surrendered only two earned runs in the two games combined in the two games. And with the series knotted at three games apiece, Dizzy begged Mr. Ricky and manager Frisch to let him pitch, despite pitching nine innings and that 3-1 to loss two, two days earlier and taking that ball off the forehead three games earlier. But Mr. Ricky, the Ford and Flash, they, acquies they acquiesce. Uh, Dizzy shuts out the Tigers in Game 7 on six hits. And the Cardinals win 11-0. Uh, that was Dizzy Teen's fifth start in 12 days, folks. And they didn't have pitch counts. They didn't have five-man rotations. This dude pitched his fifth start in 12 days, and he took a ball off his forehead. Pretty much uh, game seven was going pretty much, uh, you know, it was a blowout. It really wasn't exciting unless you were a Tigers fan. But with the, with a 7-0 lead in the sixth inning of that game, uh, Joe Ducky Medwick, he aggressively legs out a triple, sliding into third base with Marv Owens, and who's clipped to the ground. And with tensions already running hot from the shit-talking from the cards, uh, Owens and Ducky, they, they become tangled up and they begin to wrestle with one another, causing both teams to come out and igniting the ire in Tigers fans who felt like, you know, St. Louis is kind of rubbing it in right here. And that was the clip that I played you at the beginning of the show. It's the actual radio call of Joe Medwick hitting the triple, 
sliding in hard into third baseman Marv Owens, and a huge fight starts out. Well, both dugouts empty, both bullpens empty, but cooler heads are going to prevail. Ducky goes out to play his position out in left field, and all of a sudden, just like a thunderstorm of debris, rains down on top of him. I'm talking bottles, scorecards, fruit, cups. Anything the fans had was getting thrown on him. And each time, the ground crew would come out and clean up the mess, the angry fans would just litter it again. So, after 20 minutes of this, uh, Commissioner Landis is sitting in his box, and he calls Ducky Medwick to his box, and he asks Ducky, he said, Joe, did you intentionally slide hard into him? And Medwick answered honestly, he said, yes, I mean, but that's how I always play. And so Landis requests that he shake hands with Owens because he wants to try to quell this angry-ass crowd in Detroit. So he orders him to shake hands, and Medwick refuses. And Landis is forced to basically uh, tell Medwick to get out of the game before the game has to be forfeited. And I believe it's the only time that a commissioner has ordered a player off the field. But after everything prevails, uh, after everything calms down, the cards go on to win 11-0 in that game seven. And once again, Dizzy's words were prophetic as both he and his brother, they each won two games Cementing that World Series title and the legend of the Gas House Gang for future baseball generations. They combined for four wins, 28 Ks, and a 1.43 ERA. And it's just amazing. I mean, Dizzy Dean is one of those guys where, like, he just backs it up, right? I love it. I think one of my favorite Dizzy Dean quotes is, they asked him once about Josh Gibson, and he, and he clearly says, shoot, man, you give me Josh Gibson, between me and Josh Gibson, we'll have the National League wrapped up by August, and we'll spend a month fishing. And he's just this guy who just totally believes in himself. He believes in his little brother. And there you have it, folks. The Gas House Gang. And I think that's where we're going to wrap this up. I hope you enjoyed this presentation of the Gas House Gang. A ragtag collection of scrappy players who captured the hearts of America when the, you know, the country was in the process of economic recovery from the Great Depression. I would advise you go out there and scrounge up any information you can find on them. There's a few things on YouTube. You probably have to go get a book, but there's a lot of books out there. Um, so look, please remember to subscribe, follow, like, comment, and rate me as you see fit. I'm in the process of getting next week's show together here on Backwards K-Pod. And it will be on the oldest Major League 
Stadium in baseball. We're talking Fenway Park and the Green Monster. But look, that's another story for another part. So parents, if you see your kid and he's sitting on the couch and he's looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. I want to thank y'all for coming out. God bless and good night.